This is On Being's Unheard Cuts. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening to my unedited conversation with Paul Eli. He's a writer and a senior fellow with Georgetown University's Berkeley Center for Religion, Peace, and World Affairs. You can download the MP3 of my produced conversation with Paul Eli at onbeing.org. Hello. Hello, Paul. Paul? Is that Krista? Yes, it is. Hi, nice to talk to you. <laughs> you too. You can I just, uh, catch your breath. And just... Okay, I uh, yeah. arrived just a minute ago. That's okay. The uh, assistant to Roger Strauss over 40 years. You know, Roger just died last month. Mm-hmm. But he, uh, his assistant went to London for memorial service and then went to Europe and came back. And I saw her for the first time in a month yesterday. And she said, you wouldn't believe I was making my bed. And there was that woman you introduced me to, Krista Tippett. <laughs> And she has the most beautiful voice. <laughs> she was interviewing Yaroslav Pelikan. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. I love that. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> what was her name? Peggy Miller. Oh, okay. And then I mentioned today to a colleague of mine in the rights department that I was sending along passages from the books. I said, do we need to have them be in touch about permission? And she said, what show? And I said, speaking of faith. Oh, Krista did <laughs> That's great. So, and now I know a lot more about your life, too. Yeah. So I hope we can have an even better conversation. Yeah. It was great to read about your adventures well, in, thank in the you. proposal. Well, thanks. I mean, I've, your book is wonderful. And uh, obviously, it, it echoes a lot of things, uh, you know, a lot of the way I come at this through story. So... Yeah, you mentioned that you felt a calling to narrative theology. Yeah. And, you know, that's too fancy a term for what I've done. But I I think uh, to tell four stories and let the bigger story take care of itself was part of what I was trying to do. Yeah, no, it's really, it's, it was a wonderful way for me to spend the last few days. And Mitch, I'm, my engineer's nodding. We can, you're okay with levels? I just want to say one thing before we get going. Um, All right. Trish Hampel told me that you're re-releasing Virgin Time, which I yeah, think it's is... it's going to come out in a couple of months. I thought that was such a great book, and it didn't get the attention it deserves. I was really happy to hear that. The way I presented the book to the salespeople and also in the catalog copy is as an early example of a kind of book that's since emerged. Yeah. Memoir as an account of religious pilgrimage. Yeah, it really is pilgrimage. And... I mean, hers is a pilgrimage in the literal sense. She goes to Assisi and goes to, I guess it's Lourdes. Yeah. But her book came out in 92 or 93, and we've now seen dozens of books like it. And you can see that it was something that was ahead of the curve. Yeah, and also she's, her, her language is so beautiful. I mean, that, that still is rare in any, in any writing, I think. Um. Okay, the only the only worry I have about this, I think this is going to a great hour of radio, and the question is how we structure it. And I think I have a way, but we will feel our way along. All I'm right. Talking about with your work, and um, and you know I care about, as I say, the intersection of of life and thought, and so I really do want to invite you to to 
use the I word and to, to bring yourself into the conversation, maybe even more than you did in the book. You don't let yourself show. You do, I think. The word I only comes in yeah. once. <laughs> I mean, you're, you're all the way through there, but... Um, it's it's but that's, it's it's different. I'm here yes, now. I can't, right. It's unavoidable. And it's through, it wouldn't have been appropriate in that book. No, uh, but it's through your 21st century voice that I want to help. I want to bring these people to life for for the listeners. And I thought what we would do initially is just is is get into it a bit and talk about some of the um, some of the story of the times in which they lived, which is which formed all of them together and then and then go more specifically into them as individual characters and jump off the readings you sent. Does that sound okay? Uh, yeah, and how did they look? And how did they look? <laughs> the, the readings. Oh, the, no, I thought you meant how did they look. So it's the theme at the beginning of the book where you have them in the photograph. Um, no, I mean, the, I just picked I think they're terrific. I think they're great. And in fact, I think they, they do, um, the, the different readings bring out s- some qualities that they particularly stood for in my mind that I had, you know, large themes that had come out for me in the book. So it's good. All right. Um, are we ready back there? Okay. So just I'd like to start by hearing how you came to write this book. Now, what well, was it? Yeah. I think I'd wanted to be a writer ever since I was a teenager. Inspired by John McPhee and Tom Wolfe, mm. two writers that I've then gotten the chance to work with as an editor at FSG. When I got to college, I had relatively little knowledge of Catholic history I'd grown up in the suburbs in upstate New York in a modern church, gone to public schools, and gone through the whole Catholic formation experience in a very present tense sort of way. Suddenly I get to the city, and Catholic history and ethnicity is everywhere. The Irish, the Italians, the old churches, uh, places where people go to become monks, and so on and so forth. The the history is, is very thick in New York. And I needed to understand that. It was natural to look to books. A professor recommended Flannery O'Connor. I thought Flannery O'Connor was a man. (laughs) Like Tennessee Williams, one of these colorful, (laughs) double-barreled southern names. Southern names, names, yeah. Well, I got the complete stories with some money for Christmas my freshman year. I'd gone to Fordham, by the way, uh, a Jesuit Jesuit, college in, Mm. in the Bronx. Started reading the introduction by Robert Giroux. And it's just the best introduction to a book, I think, that I've ever, still ever found. What was that book? Uh, Did you say The Complete Stories of Flannery O'Connor is introduced by Robert Giroux. He just portrays her so vividly in in a few words. And one of the ways that he does it is by comparing her to Thomas Merton and describing Mm. his visits when he edited both of their books to the South. He'd go visit Merton, this renowned monk at his monastery, and they'd talk about Flannery O'Connor. Then he'd go to Georgia to visit Flannery O'Connor, the hmm. celebrated young Southern writer, and they'd talk about Thomas Merton. And he said that they had in common deep faith, great intelligence, and a highly developed sense of comedy. Hmm. So naturally, I wanted to know more about this Thomas Merton, and I bought the Seven Story Mountain one summer day a couple of years later in the middle of an internship in the middle of midtown Manhattan. And what what years are we talking here? This is the mid-80s. Okay. That was about 1985. Mm-hmm. Took the book home and was just knocked out by it. As so many people have been, the power of the narrative, the genuineness of his searching, 
but especially, and for the Catholic reader especially, the sense of strangeness and recognition. Here's this guy who comes from no belief at all, who becomes a Catholic, and then the next thing you know, he's becoming a Trappist monk. And reading the book as a Catholic, you think, is this really my religion? It sounds just so wonderfully strange and powerful. I never realized there were such depths to this thing that I observed by going to church every Sunday. I was just knocked out by it. And I tried to follow his path, really, for a year or so. I made a little space in the library that was a kind of monastic meditation space with mm. books all around the library at Fordham looked like a church <laughs> and read my way through his stuff. After college, I was living in way uptown Manhattan, didn't really have any friends, and I read some Dorothy Day in an anthology put together by Robert Ellsberg that was sold at the basement of Corpus Christi Church. Many people will know this church is the one where Merton was baptized up by Columbia University. Well, six weeks later came Lent, and I went down to the Catholic Worker on the Lower East Side hmm. to volunteer. Which is the community soup. that Dorothy Day founded. Right. She yeah. founded in 1933, and they had various headquarters around the Lower East Side, and now they're in two places on East 3rd Street and East 1st. I went down there for a few weeks and helped out, and I didn't stick around beyond Lent, but it was very powerful to see people who had dedicated their lives or parts of their lives to helping the poor. And then Percy, I was already working at FSG as an editor, the literary publishing house in Manhattan, and the books are all over the place, and you get to take them home and read them and mark them up if you want. So I read my way through his nonfiction and then went to the moviegoer, which I'd tried reading once before. And this time it just made sense as the portrait of a man on the cusp of 30, trying to figure out what significance his life has and what he's supposed to do about it. Meanwhile, these four, the references to them kept showing up in books. I'd read about Percy, and there would be a reference to Merton. Mm. I'd read about O'Connor, and there'd be a reference to Dorothy Day. So inadvertently, they started emerging as a group, and I started thinking about them that way. And one thing led to another. A couple of people suggested that I should write about this very obvious passion I had for these writers, and I decided to take the leap. You you are also now an editor at, well, I guess FSG, as it exists now, did not exist then, but but the founders of Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux were were they editors in some combination of all of these four writers? Robert Giroux edited at different times Thomas Merton, Flannery O'Connor, and Walker Percy. Mm-hmm. And, he was at Harcourt yeah. Brace in the 40s, and mm. Thomas Merton sent him a couple of novels that he turned down. But then when he sent him his memoir of Life as a Monk, Giroux grabbed it and published it, and it became a huge bestseller. He moved to FSG. He's the G in FSG. Roger Strauss, who recently died, was the uh, motive force of the firm. Mm-hmm. And he brought with him Flannery O'Connor, eventually, and then took over the editing of Walker Percy a few years later. And is it Robert Strauss? Roger Strauss. Roger Strauss. Didn't he also edit one of them? Did I read that? He, he's not an editor, but he he cherishes or cherished his... I still speak of him in the present tense. Mm. He cher- cherished his writers, and 
he made a point of meeting Flannery O'Connor when uh, she passed in New York in the late 50s. And he also got to know Walker Percy socially just about as well mm-hmm. as Giroux did. And I remember shortly before he died, Roger showed me a note that he'd, he was going through some old papers and he had a letter from Walker Percy from the 60s and it said, P.S., went to see Merton at his monastery the other day. And that was the only meeting of Walker Percy and Thomas Merton. Mm. You know, you make this statement, you you tell these stories and you describe them in a large sense as a story, a collective story of pilgrimage and a reflection on the meaning of pilgrimage, I think, in the 20th century and in our time. And here's a sentence. Um, and it strikes me, it was interesting to me that this is your declarative, definitive thesis sentence before you launch into a much more complex um, definition of what pilgrimage means. You say, pilgrimage is a journey undertaken in the light of a story. I wonder if you could say something about how that conviction has developed in your mind and in your life and what you mean well, by that. First of all, it's something that I needed to write the book to figure out. The book's subtitle is An American Pilgrimage. Its guiding motif is that these four people are on pilgrimage together, bound in a sense for the same destination, in touch, determined to see for themselves and individually uh, what awaits, but also um, you know, passing messages back and forth and in communication with one another. Their books are studded with references to pilgrimage, and yet they never say what a pilgrimage is. Uh, I'm not faulting them so much as trying to express a certain bafflement that I felt when I'd read thousands of pages of these books referring to pilgrims and pilgrimages and didn't know what it was. So I had to really look into their lives and works and try to figure out what was going on. So it was a very powerful experience to to feel that, for myself anyway, I'd, I'd found a decent working definition of what a pilgrimage is, and then at the same time to realize, in a sense, that I was on one in the writing of the book. Mm-hmm. A, a pilgrimage is a journey undertaken in the light of a story. Well, my life, up, up to the point that I began writing the book, was undertaken in the light of their stories. I, I knew their stories, in a sense, better than I knew my own. I had to make sense of their stories in order to tell them properly, but also in order to understand how I'm related to them. Right, because uh, I mean, I well, think in our time, pilgrimage is a is a very appealing word. It's a word people are using, um, maybe these days more than ten years ago. But we tend to associate it with our story rather than another story, a larger story. Maybe just a minute, somebody's trying to talk to me. Oh, um, my my producer's asking if you have a... He's hearing some rustling. If you have a jacket or papers or something. It may have been my shoes on Your the floor. Your shoes, okay. All right, uh, okay. I was just shifting position. Okay. Is it that? Oh, is that what... Yeah, that's what it is. Is it shoes? Okay. No, it's just, just my arm against my body, but I'll Sorry. It. It's okay. <laughs> okay. All right, we have to inhibit people's movement sometimes. So, yeah, so, so, okay. And did I say, I need to make, you know, this is, this gets to be messy and it doesn't have to be linear because we um, will edit it. It's not live. And so we get to have a real conversation. So make sure you know that you don't have to be word perfect. 
Yeah, so pilgrimage as part of someone else's story. That might be the strange idea. Well, I think if I could discuss it another way, it would be that American Catholics especially, but I would say religious people in this country generally, are usually faced with a stark dichotomy that's presented to them between being traditional or individual, between the self and the community. Now, this is not my experience that these things are so so sharply divided. So in the course of writing the book, I was seeking a an image or a set of images that would try to explain my sense gained from these writers of how we relate to tradition and to the community to which we belong. And that's what this image of pilgrimage does, as far as I can tell. We enter the story in the middle. Yeah, the story precedes too. us. Mm-hmm. It's the stories of our families, of our parents, uh, the story of our region, the story of our religious tradition or the religious tradition to which we come on pilgrimage. We have certain expectations because of that story that we we want to test with our lives and mm. see if they stand up to sound them and see if they're genuine. And this, for example, explains or helps to explain to me why so many people in the United States move from one religious tradition to another. Because we somehow don't consider it authentic just to carry on in the story that uh, has mm. preceded us. We need we need to encounter a story for ourselves, and that's what happens many times when a person converts from one religion to another. The, the story that's actively embraced, uh, there's an authenticity to that pattern that seems lacking when we simply carry on the story that that was our parents' story. You could also say but, that in that Americans today <clears throat> aren't rooted in the stories of their places or families or religious traditions in the way that people were in previous generations. I mean, that would be another way to think about why that happens, that Americans can throw themselves into the middle of other stories. I think that's probably true. And it also helps to explain, as far as I can tell, why so much of what's interesting in American religious experience is happening to adults. Hmm probably for several generations, maybe half the 20th century, there was an assumption that religion was something that you got in childhood and then kind of carried out for the rest of your life. Now, whether or not that was true, in fact, and I don't think it was, we now have a much better sense of religion and the pilgrimage as a lifelong affair. So you find many people in midlife suddenly deciding, I don't know what what story it is that that I'm trying to match my life to. Right. Or the story that I'm trying to match my life to isn't sufficient. It doesn't tell the truth about existence as well as this other story. And so I'm going to try to live my life in light of that other story, another religion or another faith tradition, let's say. Yeah, that's really interesting. And, okay, and that is also... Uh, is something that I would say Walker Percy and Flannery O'Connor and Thomas Merton and Dorothy Day, there's a sense in which they became, I mean, only one of them was born Catholic, Flannery O'Connor. The others were converts as adults and um, 
and their pilgrimage were really pilgrimages of their adulthood. But be, before we talk about them, and I do want to get to talking about them specifically, I, I, I want to ask you to tell some of the story of their time that I think um, is, is different from our time, perhaps. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you'll correct me on this. But the the incredible convergence of literature and religion sort of in the mid-20th century you know, these were people who became deeply religious, you might even say obsessively religious, and something they had in common was that they were, <clears throat> I'm sorry, I've got a bad voice today, that they were writers and thinkers, that they read Dickens and Joyce and Pasternak and Eliot and Augustine and Kierkegaard. Um, t- tell me the story of the times that, that formed them all in that particular way, as you, as you know it. Well, you're right to say that books were the medium for them. I think of them as people converted by books. In all four cases, it was through the written word and through literary books especially that they had their deepest encounter with Catholicism. Thomas Merton read about monasteries and read medieval philosophy and read Dante and thought, this is the life for me, (laughs) and became a monk in a very medieval abbey. Flannery O'Connor had a breakthrough as a young writer of fiction when she realized that the stories of the Old Testament threw a special light on the rural south where she was living. Walker Percy had tuberculosis in the middle 40s and basically read his way through existentialist fiction and philosophy, Dostoevsky and Kierkegaard, Mm -hmm. and recognized himself in those stories and thought... And it's a long story how he got from that to Catholicism. I thought, this is who I am. These books are explaining me to myself. And Dorothy Day, this is to go backwards chronologically, mm-hmm. read the 19th century novels, Dickens, Tolstoy, and thought, there's a sense of the, the human race as one family in those books and of the interdependence of people that she wanted for herself and thought, this is true. And... F- sought and founded in the Catholic religion. So they had an incredible openness to the written word as a conduit for experience, let's say, inviting them to go further. Why in that time more than in this? A sociologist might say they didn't have television or (laughs) there was a great level of literacy or something like that. Mm -hmm. I'm a little wary of those generalizations myself. I think... What stands out about that age, and these four people in particular for me, and I'm talking about the years before the war, uh, around World War II and just after, was the incredibly high expectations for life that they had. Here was a country that had a depression, two world wars, and for some reason people knew what was at stake in a human life. Mm. Dorothy Day said to herself, I have one life and I'm going to really live it to the fullest by by trying to be a saint. Right, Likewise, they, Thomas Merton. <clears throat> let's put them in time. I mean, they, I think they all started, began publishing in the late 40s and early 50s. Is that right? So really, as you say, coming out of World War II. Dorothy Day, Dorothy Day started the Catholic Worker in May of 1933. Mm-hmm. She was a generation older than the others. But her career, her literary career, really came together after the war and with the publication of her memoirs, The Long Loneliness, in 1952. Okay. 
Thomas Merton, Seventh Story Mountain, his autobiography, was published when he was a young man in his middle 30s in 1948. O'Connor's first novel, Wise Blood, was published in 1952. Walker Percy's first essays were published in 1952 or 1953. And that's that's when he, he'd been trained as a doctor, but he, he became a writer with the publication of those essays. And... Uh, and you were saying that they um i i i think something that strikes me um at the same time that they that they all really now have gone down in in history as sort of emblematically religious emblematically catholic in fact they were um very much struggling with the world the america in which they found themselves uh in in different ways they were you know, they, well, that's, I mean, it's just hard to generalize. I mean, they were they were very much engaged and a part of their time and place. But something that connects all of them is that they 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 seem to all be looking for a configuration of place and companions where it would be possible to lead a holy life, and they they all experienced discomfort with where they were planted, and they they seem to make a distinction between. You know, whether you could live these values and virtues and beliefs where you found yourself, and they all looked for the right context for that. I, I thought that was intriguing. I think that's right. It's most pronounced in Thomas Merton's life. He, having gotten to the monastery of Gethsemane in Kentucky, which he thinks is really the perfect place on God's earth for him, he then proceeds to imagine other places that would be more perfect. Yeah. And he does this, scarcely leaving the monastery for the next 20 years. The monks were not allowed to go out except to the doctor. Uh, he imagines monasteries in the Andes or on an Indian reservation or hermitages in France or in the hills of Italy uh, or in the far west or in Alaska. Again and again, thinking, if I could only find this place that it was ordered to my peace and solitude and experience of God, everything would be right. And this is what, in his case, one of his mentors early on, the Thomistic philosopher Jacques Maritain, identified as Augustinian restlessness. <laughs> I am restless until I rest in you, Augustine said, or I think he said, we are restless until we rest in you. And this, this feeling of restlessness was the core of Merton's spirituality. But you're right to say it was very true for the others. I mean, Dorothy I think, Day. Yeah, Dorothy Day sort of immersed herself in humanity. and But also, I remember there was a line, was it Peter Morin, her companion, her co-founder of Catholic Worker, who said that they needed to create a place where it would be easy to be good. <laughs> or easier to be good. Easier to be good. gives a good sense okay. of the realism of the Catholic Worker. Yeah. Just a little easier to be good. Mm-hmm. And this, it's as you say, they had an incredible sense of how society could be ordered a little differently than it was. And this connects to what I was saying earlier. Their expectations were so high. They weren't content to just rest in their alienation and sense of Mm -hmm. disappointment with life. They really, it sounds cliche to say they sought to do something about it, but they had an incredible imagination for the way in which in their small fashion, they could make the world different and make it a place where it was a little easier to be good. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's talk about them in particular. And and I'd like to start with Dorothy Day. Um, 
Now, what we can do in the radio show is is ha- is have a reading of this so the listeners can hear all of it, which can be really fun. Um, I'll just read a little bit of this postscript from The Long Loneliness that you sent me. And, and what I want to ask you to reflect on is, uh, you know, why you chose this reading, what it says, um, what it says about what, is, what was essential and what's in the pilgrimage of this person. I mean, let me ask you, first of all, and, you know, I think you're, it, it's so, of course, Dorothy Day is, is someone who, of these four, maybe Dorothy Day and Thomas Merton are more famous in our time. <clears throat> I'm not sure that I had a memory. I, I know of her as this saint working with the poor. I didn't have such a, a memory of her as this wild bohemian who lived with several men who had an abortion and and then was a single mother. She left a lot of that out of... Uh, I mean, it's told very elliptically in The Long Loneliness. Yeah. Uh, she has an almost Victorian reticence. She'll say, or she does say at one point, about the next few years, there's little to say. <laughs> and that's when she was off being married and traveling around Europe with. Oh right, I her forgot about that marriage. Yeah, that well, she, brief she, marriage. It wasn't dishonest. Mm-hmm. It was there's a there's a headmistress sternness about her sometimes, where she'll just insist, "I'm not going to go into this," and and she doesn't. Uh, but but we now know a good deal more about just how complex her bohemian life was. Mm-hmm. You um, identify with all of these people. I think in, in each of them, a vi- there's one sort of vital religious question or yearning around which their pilgrimage um, hinged. What, what would you say that is in Dorothy Day? Well, I characterize her as the reformer. I tried to identify religious characters or types, not to reduce these four, but so that we can understand our own lives better. And she's the person who could always imagine society better than it is. It stemmed from her experience in the San Francisco earthquake. She was an eight-year-old girl. She lived in Oakland. The earthquake struck. Her family ran out of the house. She had brothers and sisters and parents and she stood on the street watching for the next few days as the people of Oakland helped each other and helped the people of San Francisco who were coming across the bay in boats. And for the rest of her life, she just thought, people helped each other. Why can't we just keep doing that? Hmm. Why can't society be organized so that we could help each other a little more? So that that stranger who asked for food that I actually recognize that that person is a brother or sister to me in a way. So she had a reformer's imagination of how the world might be other than it is. You know, what's so interesting to me about that image of her standing before the San Francisco earthquake, seeing how people could love each other and help one another, you can dismiss that. You can say, well, that's one of those extreme moments in life. We've all seen that. There's crisis and then it passes. But then what she went on to do is, is to create communities of that same kind of crisis and intensity on a day-to-day basis with the poor. Well, that's right. And it's partly out of the recognition that it doesn't have to be merely the crisis moments mm-hmm. that call forth that love in us. And also the recognition that at some moment, everyone is having a crisis of that magnitude. Yeah, that the crisis and, is among us all the time. Yeah, mm-hmm. and that 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 you have to be, be there when the person is having his or her crisis and not... Uh, 
wait for the city to burn down. So here's this reading from the postscript. Um, She says, um, we were just sitting there talking when Peter Morin, is that how he said his name? Is it Morin? Yeah, Morin. When Peter Morin came in, we were just sitting there talking when lines of people began to form saying, we need bread. We could not say, go, be thou filled. If there were six small loaves and a few fishes, we had to divide them. There was always bread. We were just sitting there talking and people moved in on us. Let those who can take it, take it. Some moved out and that made room for more and somehow the walls expanded. We were just sitting there talking and someone said, said, let's all go live on a farm. It was as casual as all that, I often think. It just came about. It just happened. I found myself a barren woman, the joyful mother of children. It is not always... It is not easy always to be joyful, to keep in mind the duty of delight. The most significant thing about the Catholic worker is poverty, some say. The most significant thing is community, others say. We are not alone anymore, but the final word is love. We cannot love God unless we love each other, and to love we must know each other. We know him in the breaking of bread, and we know each other in the breaking of bread, and we are not alone anymore. I'm just skipping over. We have... We have all known the long loneliness, and we have learned that the only solution is love and that love comes with community. It all happened while we sat there talking, and it is still going on. Why did you send me that piece of hers? Well, it's one of the most powerfully written things that she did. And as the postscript to her autobiography, it's one that obviously she considered important and representative. But what it really gets at is something that I think you were pointing toward in all the remarks of the past few minutes. She she saw it, she thought it possible for society to be different than it is because she thought that we're naturally oriented toward love. We're, We're made to love one another. That's natural and strife and war are, are, are a deformity of that. But what we're created for is to love one another and to love one another in community. So she was trying to make clear in that passage that though she was a radical and formidable organizer, she, it was not a programmatic effort that got the Catholic worker going. It was people doing what came naturally, which was loving one another in community and talking about it. And, you know, again, I think this word intensity keeps coming to me when I think of her... I think I, should, I need to ask you, because there may be people who listen who don't know Dorothy Day. I'm sure there will be. I mean, t- t- just tell the story of what she did, what, sh- what she created, she and Peter Moore in there. So Day, who was from New York, lived in California and Chicago, lived the bohemian life of artists in New York and Staten Island, and also lived as a radical, a member of uh, radical political groups. But none of them spoke to her deepest instincts, which she said were religious. And she thought they talked more about solidarity and friendship with the poor than actually enacting it. The poor were in the Catholic Church at that time. Hmm. She felt she wanted in the most physical way possible to be joined to the poor. And the way for her for that to happen was for her to become a Catholic. Um, I'm not giving a full sense of the religious implication of this. She didn't just... Uh, you know, want to be among them for an hour a week. She wanted to be joined to them. Mm-hmm. 
So she became a Catholic uh, around the time her daughter was baptized. But she still had all her radical instincts and let's just to try to fix the world. She had this daughter. This was a daughter who was born out of wedlock, right? That's right. And I'm uh, <laughs> skipping the most interesting parts okay. of the story, all right. I guess. No, sorry. I don't want to introduce <clears throat> But it just, yeah, I think that's an important, she, interesting She thing. was living with a uh, anarchist philosopher-type man named Forrester. And because she'd had an abortion uh, in the teens and because of how it was performed, she thought that uh, she would not be able to have another child. So when she became pregnant, she was a joyful beyond measure. And for her, this joy and gratitude was essentially religious. She felt a gratitude to God, and she felt joined to creation in a way that she could not explain except in religious terms. The child was born healthy and she was determined to have the child baptized. She didn't even quite understand this in- instinct, but she knew that it had to be so. Well, her husband, he was a common-law husband, so uh, I guess it's correct to say the child was born out of wedlock, wouldn't have anything of religion. So in baptizing the child, that ended the marriage. Dorothy Day then took the natural next step, which was to become a Catholic herself. Then she looked around, and the world is still broken. She's still eager as ever to fix things and make the world a better place. She's a talented journalist and organizer. What is she going to do with this very strong religious faith that makes her more than ever want to see justice in society? She's not sure. But one day, this man named Peter Morin, recommended by a mutual friend, shows up on her doorstep and uh, just starts talking this philosophy of communal Catholic life. They put their heads together, and a few months later, they put out a newspaper, The Catholic Worker, May 1st, 1933. And then, in the way she describes in the excerpt, people just started hanging around the office and then wanting to sleep there and eat there. It was the middle of the Depression, and the Catholic workers said to themselves, well, we got to practice what we preach, so let's, let's feed them and clothe them and shelter them, and the rest is history. This phrase that was the title of her, of her, her autobiography and was also repeated in the, in the reading, um, the long loneliness, what did that mean when she used that phrase? It's a little enigmatic the way she uses it. It comes from an English nun, and not one who was especially important to Dorothy Day of the Catholic Worker. But Dorothy Day, in a way, she was not an intellectual. She was a a wide reader who had a journalist's sense of occasion and of the useful. So if she saw a phrase that spoke to what she was trying to do, she would adopt it and incorporate it into her columns and talks, and this was one of those phrases. But what she meant by it is that I think she meant to make clear that even she, the founder of a great communal movement, even she, uh, revered for befriending poor and alcoholic men in the Bowery, was essentially lonely. And as she says in the excerpt, the solution for that we have all known the long loneliness and the solution is community 
She said at one point about the Catholic worker, we were not communal, merely gregarious, <laughs> which I think is a beautiful expression, again, of the realism or mm. humbleness of the Catholic worker. Let's not have a big communal program. Let's just be able to, to talk to each other and, and, and confide in each other. That's a good enough start. And um, theologically, how did she understand what she was doing with the Catholic worker? I mean, I think she was imitating Christ, right, in the most direct way she could think of. That's right. It's easy to tell the story from the one side, the way I told it, as the Catholic worker, as the fulfillment of her radical and uh, political instincts. But the other side of it, probably more important, is that she saw it as an imitation of Christ. All her life she'd been trying to imitate characters, and I mean this in the best sense, to imitate characters in the books she read. She would read a book by Kropotkin about the reform of society and really try to do what the book said. She would try to live in a sense of the brotherhood of man the way it was depicted in Tolstoy. So when she reads the Gospels, she recognizes that the imperative of the Gospels is, follow me. It calls the believer to imitate Christ. The way to do that in the city of the early 20th century is to be poor, in her view. Hmm. And so she became poor. You know, there's something in the story of Dorothy Day, and in fact all these people you write about, um, Flannery O'Connor, Walker Percy, Thomas Merton, there's a real fierceness which, which, and directness in the way they pursue faith and pursue God. Um, it strikes me as very bold compared to the way I think that pursuit at least is articulated in our time. What are, do you know what I'm describing and how, how would you respond to that? I think you're right that their fierceness is not, it's not typical in any time, but it certainly seems a better fit in their age than it does in ours. Why is that? It's possible that the very fact that the alternatives were posed so starkly challenged a person to declare themselves one way or the other. This was a time in which there were many, many associates of Dorothy Day and Thomas Merton who were pretty militant atheists who thought that religion is the opiate of the people and could go on at great length saying that. It was one of their core convictions. So for Dorothy Day to go over to the other side, she had to be very definite about what she believed uh, in order to to contest with those people or just to make herself clear. Another thing, and I'm loath to reduce people's behavior to grand historical circumstances, yeah. but you had a depression and you had two world wars. Uh, there was a certain clarity lent to Dorothy Day's experience or Thomas Merton's by the fact that they were deciding for religion day in the midst of the depression, and Thomas Merton literally in the days before the uh, Japanese bomb Pearl Harbor. They were around and forced to make sense as relatively new Christians of the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki right. and to figure out what that meant for their age. Hmm. I, I also wondered, and 
you know, when I was thinking about Flannery O'Connor, um, or this, when I was looking at Flannery O'Connor and some of what she's written and also the reading that you marked, um, they struggled with unbelief as much as they struggled with belief, or they struggled against unbelief. Um, and I wondered if that also created a special fierceness in the way they pursued faith. But I mean, you know, here is here's Flannery O'Connor writing, um, I don't know how the kind of faith required of a Christian living in the 20th century can be at all if it is not grounded on this experience that you are having right now of unbelief. This may be the case always and not just in the 20th century. Peter said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. It is the most natural and most human and most agonizing prayer in the Gospels, and I think it is the foundation prayer of faith. Um, but what strikes me also in the way that, that, they, that they all experienced, Dorothy Day, Thomas Merton, Flannery O'Connor, they all experienced faith to come at a cost and an unbelief, something that they had to reckon with when they experienced it in themselves. That's right. And again, you can look at it culturally, culturally or you can look at it personally. Mm-hmm. Culturally, the O'Connor believed that, that one breathed in the air of disbelief living in 20th century America. When you look back, it now seems like a relatively religious time, <laughs> maybe compared to our own or compared to the situation in Europe now, let's say. Mm-hmm. But she thought it was in the air we breathe, this disbelief. I believe she said it was disbelief combined with attraction for the holy hmm. is uh, the characteristic of her time. And then personally, the three of them, leaving out O'Connor, all came from places of unbelief or disbelief. Day among the radicals who thought religion was an opiate. Merton among radicals in Cambridge and at Columbia, but also as a kind of teenage nihilist who just thought the pursuit of pleasure was uh, was an end in itself. Walker Percy as a person prone to despair. His father and grandfather both committed suicide. His mother was killed in a car accident. His cousin, called Uncle Will, who raised him, was a person who was immensely cultivated, successful, admired, and yet wasn't sure there was any point to it all. So they had very strong personal experience of unbelief or disbelief. What strikes me again, when I mentioned earlier how high their expectations for a life were, they weren't content to settle in that place and say, this is my lot or this is the lot of our time. I'll just bear it. Their hunger for something more, for something deeper, was so strong that they made that unbelief or disbelief a starting point and then a continual testing ground for their religious convictions. Right. I mean, that's such a... Let me just, I want to ask here behind the glass how we're doing with time. Can we keep going? Do we, we don't just have the studio. We have until 2.30. Okay. All right. And, and are my answers too long? Or? No, no, no. This is fine. Right. It's, it's a conversation. Your answers are good. I just suddenly saw the clock and was worried that we... Looks like we're only halfway through. I'm off mic. Uh, 
Okay. <laughs> yeah, we're fine. Um, if the, I'm just looking at, at, at Walker Percy. I did, something you just mentioned, Walker Percy, and, uh, and how much suicide there, and tragedy of that sort there was in his family. And it seemed to me that for him, the, the animating religious question for him had to do with death. He also nearly died himself of tuberculosis. Percy, as I said, his father and grandfather committed suicide. His mother died in a car accident. He went to medical school. His uncle died shortly after he began medical school. He he was a pathologist uh, studying dead bodies, basically, of tuberculosis patients, corpses that came in, sometimes washing up out of the East River. And instead of diagnosing the dead in a way, he thought, I'd like to diagnose the living. And when he himself was struck with tuberculosis, he lay down a doctor and got up a novelist, but (laughs) remained all the while a diagnostician. The living individual human person would be his subject. What did he mean when he wrote, it is that, he wrote, there is a special kinship between the novel as an art form and Christianity as an ethos, Catholicism in particular? What he meant is that the novel as a form is distinguished from other forms in the broad sense, like a play or an epic poem, in that it deals with narrative events in the lives of ordinary people. There are exceptions to this, but in the main, if you looked at the history of the novel over 250 years, that would be true. With the novel, the ordinary person comes on stage. Well, theologically, the coming of Christ is the entry of God into the life of an ordinary person. That Jesus is just an ordinary man in first century Palestine, uh, walking the earth like the rest of us, having problems, uh, encountering opposition, dying a violent death. So in this sense, Christianity is seen as sanctifying and directing us to ordinary lives as a place where the divine is to be found. And so you can see the parallel between that and the novel, which, which looks for meaning in precisely the same place. Yeah, he here's another uh sentence from from this what was this essay you sent from Walker Percy? It's called Another Message in the Bottle. Okay. He had written a essay called A Message in the Bottle in the fifties. And for him that was an essay that he would use essays to solve his problems, intellectual problems, and then go into fiction. He solved certain problems about how to how to diagnose the contemporary malaise, as he called it, in this essay, The Message in the Bottle, and then dramatized those same problems in The Moviegoer, his mm-hmm. first and best novel. So at the end of his life, he revisited The Message in the Bottle again and tried to make explicit this parallel between Christianity and fiction that had been implicit in so much of his fiction to that point. 
Here's another sentence. Judeo-Christianity is about pilgrims who have something wrong with them and are embarked on a search to find a way out. <laughs> this is also what novels are about. It, it, it would fit mm-hmm. a lot of novels if you think about it. Mm-hmm. Percy would like to emphasize that the pilgrim searches outside the self. The guru searches within. And he liked to distinguish a little too glibly, in my opinion, between Western and Eastern religion on this score, that Christianity and also fiction, even though they're capable of some introspection, finally point the reader or the seeker outward into the world of other people and events to find the meaning of things. And for for him, who is so pr- prone to introspection, this was a kind of rescue. Um. I think there's so he he in terms of it's it's clear to hear the echoes it's easy to hear the echoes here between this idea that we began with that you've traced in the book of pilgrimage and story um and and I think Percy said something like the modern predicament makes pilgrimage impossible. He makes this interesting observation I mean it's one of these things it's obvious, but people don't point it out very often that he says that modern experience often comes secondhand, okay. But, but then he makes this other point, that even when we have direct experiences, we are so self-conscious that, that, that it ruins it. Um, and, and then uh, that, um, that we're doomed to imitate life. But I think you said that, that his point was still, we have to keep trying to, to really live. I think that's right. He, he used to express this, an image of people going to the Grand Canyon and not being able to see the Grand Canyon because they were too busy trying to measure the distance between what they were seeing and the expectation that they had of it from postcards and Mm. documentaries and such like. But again, his expectations were great. He was not willing to settle for that and just say, this is how it is. So the pilgrim takes that dissatisfaction or that lack of fit or that self-consciousness and tries to push beyond it, to push through to authentic first-hand experience. In the case of Percy, the way out of his self-consciousness, which was acute, was to write in the point of view of a character who was not himself. Mm. So in the moviegoer is narrated by a man named Binks Bowling. He's a southerner like Percy. He's from a wealthy family like Percy. He has a noble ancestor who has kind of raised him like Percy, and yet he's not Walker Percy. He's a much more callow and limited figure. But the book is told in the first person, so Percy finds his way out of himself by imagining himself into a, into a fictional character. And it was just an incredible breakthrough for him and a sense of, of the possibilities of art to get beyond self-consciousness. Hmm. So for him to be a novelist really came to seem the the solution to to grappling with the human condition in his time, in his particular right. life. Mm. And he, he articulated this in a number of ways. Partly the novelist is a diagnostician, a kind of soul doctor. And partly the novelist is an artist who who's trying to lose himself in the work made. That's the way Mary Tan, the Catholic philosopher, understood art as self-forgetfulness. And this was true really for all the people this book is about, was different ways of trying to do the 
fundamental Christian thing of losing oneself in order to find oneself mm. and to lose oneself <laughs> in imitation of the divine. What are the different ways to lose oneself among the poor, as a monk in community, as a novelist? Uh, for O'Connor, by writing about experiences that are far from anything she's you know, personally had. Mm. Um, I wonder, I just had something went out of my... You know, I know what, this is what I want to ask you. He, if I ask you who... I don't want to ask you who's the Walker Percy of today, but I, I do want to ask you, we, we have this image now of there's certainly a lot of religious writing going on, and there's, there's a lot of best-selling religious fiction writing going on. But, um, you know, Walker Percy was really philosophical and theological while a novice, novelist. Do we have that kind of fiction being written now? This is one of the questions that I've been asked since the book has been published. Who are the successors to these writers? Yeah. I think they're, they have successors, but the successors don't look the way we expect them to. Mm-hmm. But then you remember that these people didn't look the way they were <laughs> right. expected to. Yeah. Flannery O'Connor wasn't anybody's idea of what a Catholic novelist looked like or wrote like in 1952. Same with Walker Percy or Dorothy Day or Thomas Merton. I find that it exists in individual works more than in in a whole body of work by one writer. Okay. For example, Ironweed by William Kennedy. That's a real religious novel in my view. Mm. This uh, character is really trying... He's in a kind of purgatory. His son is a... died in an accident for which he was responsible and he's trying to expiate that somehow and there's just enough references to Dante and Purgatory to make it really work among nonfiction writers Kathleen Norris of course Mm -hmm. but also someone less discussed like Richard Rodriguez uh, who's on the McNeil era news hour and has written three remarkable books of nonfiction all backshadowed by a very Catholic sense of of last things let's say Mm. And then uh, it's hard to say, but uh, there are novelists who aren't religious at all who have overtones of these writers. Hamuri Murakami, whose wind-up bird chronicle is really a chronicle of despair that Walker Percy, I think, would recognize and would have admired. Let's um, let's talk about Thomas Merton, who may be the person who most uh, who people are more consciously shaped by in terms of just reading his books um, in our time um, and I'll have to say again there's something about the way you've written about him his thought is in there his the, the shape pilgrimage took in his life but it's all embedded in the the life he lived and the person he was, and um, and Merton, it's it's easy to idealize Merton, this monk, this Trappist monk, and with these incredibly wise, wonderful, beautiful writings. And there's something at one and the same time that's sort of disappointing and also encouraging to get more flesh on those bones and to know, you know, what a how how very human he was. 
and that his journey had lots of dark places and lots of confusion and, and failings. Well, Merton kept very detailed journals mm-hmm. published in seven volumes. And these journals are a remarkable account of his life and his inner life. And in my view, they're a lot more honest than a lot of his published writing. Uh, in his published work, he became famous with his first book, really, The Seven Story Mountain. And there were all sorts of expectations that what the monk should be and what the monk should do and what the monk should say. And Merton, if you think Walker Percy was self-conscious, Merton had it times five. <laughs> right. <laughs> and he tried to go to the monastery to get away from himself, and suddenly he was the most famous monk in the world yeah. because of his autobiography, which sold 600,000 copies, an astonishing number at that time. And so a lot of his public work is informed or it's fraught with these questions of what the monk is supposed to be. And then in the journals, it's there too, but it's just a lot more reliable to me. Mm-hmm. So as you say, there's some disappointments when you realize the banality of some of his days or his he was probably neurotic, just <laughs> worrying over things all the time. But I think of him as a person who risked the most of these four writers. He... He began as a perfectionist and ended somewhere else, <laughs> much more understanding of his own frailty and just willing to even put it on the page, knowing that we'd be sitting here talking about it years after his death. But he didn't, he didn't worry that too much. Yeah, you, you point out something that I always felt. I read The Seven Story Mountain after I had read some of his other work, and I didn't really enjoy it. I mean, I find that it, it's, obviously there's a great deal in it, but I, the tone of it is somewhat self-righteous and... You all, you describe this later epiphany that he, that he had, I think maybe a decade after he wrote The Seven Story Mountain, where he sort of accepted himself as a full human being. There's this declaration he made, I have the immense joy of being a man. <laughs> that makes him more mm-hmm. like the rest of us also, that he's still discovering himself, even after his autobiography has been a bestseller. <laughs> well, the autobiography was published when he was very young. He was 33, which means he wrote it in his, shortly after turning 30. And he was, he was flush with, the, with ardor over his still new religion and still new monastic calling. Dorothy Day said that she thought he'd just gone too far into monastic mysticism hmm. uh, in the book, especially at the end of the book. I say that he's a person who risked a great deal, and one of the risks he took was he was willing to change, even after a famous autobiography was out there mm-hmm. saying who he was and what he believed. He recognized that he had identified being a Catholic and being a monk with, with apartness, and in a way with superiority, as you suggest. And then he realized that that wasn't necessarily the essence of the Christian experience, to be apart or to be superior. On the street that day in Louisville, you mentioned his epiphany. He was in Louisville to go to the doctors and walking down the street just in ordinary priest clothes, but not set apart as a monk. And he just felt like a person walking in rush hour like thousands of other people, and he felt joined to the whole human race. Well, that insight was a reversal of the position of his autobiography. 
but he was willing to make it and willing to put it out there. And I think the pe people identify with Merton so much because, in a way, the entire Catholic Church was was turning that corner in this country at that time, from a point of apartness to one of full excuse me, one of full participation in American society. Mm -hmm. Thousands of people thought, "Wow, I don't have to flee the world to be a to be a real believer. I can take part and keep faith." And yes, and he stands for many people for making this move um, away from the world, e even though his movement, his movements later were more and more towards others. You say, I think, that pilgrimage—I can't find my—pilgrimage is a that that pilgrimage for him is a continual voyage out to the other. What do, you, what do you mean by that? Well, in becoming a monk and a Trappist monk, now Trappists are pledged to keep silence for most of the day. They were at that time walled in behind their enclosures, not meant to see people from the world that often. Being a monk was identified with apartness. In a way, Thomas Merton's mind was so abrim with ideas and thoughts and self-conscious musings that he, and Robert Giroux told me this, he needed to go to the monastery really to stay sane or to become himself. Mm -hmm. Then he found he was as gregarious as ever. <laughs> he happened to be behind the walls of an enclosed monastery. So he kept voyaging out imaginatively to meet the other in dialogue. In a sense, the autobiography was like a big letter to the world, the world he had supposedly left behind. Then all the readers that that attracted him created endless opportunities for dialogue, and he just kept going farther or deeper with it, writing to readers, writing to other writers, yeah. uh, you writing that to Walker Percy. Yes. And he ends up spending three days with the young Dalai Lama in Dharamsala, and... It's a voyage out to the other, and these two monks are sitting there recognizing that what they have in common as monks is more profound than whatever might divide them. And then he was dead. Yeah. I think one of the themes of Merton that most influenced me when I was reading him in my 20s, which seemed to come straight from monasticism, but then also seemed to be very applicable to life, was his idea of intention, pure intention and right intention and that the, what's important is that you do do the right thing and not be attached to the consequences or the, or what will follow. You say and I don't know if that's if that's what you're referring to. I, I think it is that that this practice of religious detachment then became his way out of Gethsemane and the root of his sympathy with religious people of all kinds including as you just mentioned the Dalai Lama. Is, um, is that right? Is that the same, the same detachment? It, it, it's paradoxical because it sounds like it's talking about withdrawal, but in fact it's, it's not. In fact, it's a movement. It allows you to do anything. Is that, I mean, if it seems... It is, know. and he, detachment in the Christian tradition is a little different from, say, Buddhist detachment, mm -hmm. as I understand it. Mm -hmm. The classical Buddhist idea is 
have no attachments and there will be an end to suffering and something like happiness will ensue. The Christian understanding is it's, it's right attachments that you want and it's, it's, it's the wrong attachments that you're supposed to try to gain detachment from so that the right ones can flower forth or however you want to put it. Right. In the passage of Merton's that you're going to read or that's going to be read... We, we practice detachment so that uh, God can fill the space that's created in our lives uh, by our detachment. So Merton, Merton's detachment left him more open and more free for all the dialogues that you're talking about. So his uh, attachment to God was primary, but he could let go of Gethsemane a little bit of his monastery and move outwards? Right. When he first got to Gethsemane, he thought, this literal place in Kentucky is my salvation. Then it must have gone through a hundred different iterations, and I'll just suggest the direction they took. He wound up saying, no, it's what I'm meant to be is a monk. To be a monk is to continually ask what it is to be a monk. <laughs> and what it means is that I'm supposed to gain a certain detachment from the world in a sense so that I can know the world and be in contact with it more acutely. And nobody who's read his work seriously, can it, we all feel that in some measure he achieved that, that all those years in the monastery readied him to have a profound encounter with, say, the Dalai Lama when he did venture out. And he also uh, died when uh, in the Far East, uh, attending a conference of Buddhists and Christians. Such an interesting place for him to to end. He was in Bangkok. Yeah, it was nineteen sixty eight. Keep in mind, this was a year of terrible violence in America. Martin Luther King had been killed. Robert F. Kennedy had been killed. Merton in December set out for Asia. It was his first long trip away from the monastery since he'd entered. The only other trip he'd made was one to Minnesota in 1958 and to St. John's Abbey in Collegeville. Well, he goes to Asia, expecting to travel around for months, and he didn't know when or how he would come back. He gave a talk to some monastic superiors, Christians, but uh, Asian Christians, many of them. He must have taken a shower and come out and slipped on the wet floor and touched a fan with a loose wire and he was electrocuted. He was only 58, which is amazing to think. He'd be 89 now. And to to think of... Imagine if Thomas Merton had been around for another 30 years, Hmm. how much the American religious landscape would reflect his presence if he'd been around for another... for that long. People were so used to Merton investing everything that happened to him with such significance that they had to invest his death with significance. (laughs) The point I try to make in my book is that it was a kind of, he was felled by a random accident. And it's a terrible thing, but it, uh, you know, it's been suggested that he was moving to some higher plane or (laughs) committing suicide or. 
other things that I just don't think make any sense. You know, you just you just said, um, what what would the American religious landscape be if if he had lived another thirty years? I wonder what other questions like that emerged for you that that are staying with you that you're pursuing or puzzling over. Well, the big one has to do with the question you just asked. Really, I said, and I'm even now I'm not sure that it's right that Merton's many years in the monastery prepared him for this eventual meeting with the Dalai Lama. In a sense, yes. But the four people my book is about all chose a kind of solitude or a separateness for themselves. Merton in his monastery, Walker Percy by moving to what he called the pleasant non-place of Covington, Louisiana, a pretty anonymous town at the time, for someone who'd grown up in one of the most illustrious families of the South. Uh, he didn't have any family connections there, any reason to be there. Flannery O'Connor, when she became ill with lupus, moved to a farmhouse in rural Georgia. And Dorothy Day, although she was in the thick of things in New York, she wasn't part of the literary world per se. She was down putting out her penny newspaper on the Lower East Side. Yeah. So they were all separate. And when I was putting the book together, I'm just marveling at how separate they really were. Today, these people would be on panels, uh, probably. <laughs> they would get so many invitations, they would never have any time to do anything else. Yeah, uh, It would be just natural to have a panel, let's say, in Collegeville, Minnesota, with Dorothy Day and Thomas Merton and Walker Percy and Dorothy Day, or Flannery O'Connor. It's true, yeah. And so I, then I ask, and... And going back to what you said at the beginning of our conversation about their fierceness, what are, I wonder what I'm missing by not choosing that apartness. You know, am I missing a level of depth that, that they sought and I'm not going after hmm. uh, in, in the way that in our society we seem to just accept the level of busy, busyness as a problem but one we're not really determined to get past? Is that, are we missing out on something? Or did they actually miss out on something through their apartness? It's not an answerable question. It's just a question when you're trying to figure out your own religious life in terms of theirs. Yeah. Do I go their way or not? Well, we also, of course, have the benefit of hindsight with them. And, I mean, Flannery O'Connor might not have been on anyone's radar screen to be invited to those panel discussions, right? It's only, That's right. And yeah. it's a great, I'm glad you mentioned that because she was much less well-known than people think. Mm-hmm. Her book sold about... 2,000 copies. She, uh, the the, the lectures that are in her amazing book of essays were given at tiny Catholic colleges for the most part, and so on. I mean, Thomas Merton obviously became a celebrity, but, and Dorothy Day in her way as well, although I imagine she was very well known in some circles and not in others. I guess uh, I I wonder if, mm, if the pilgrims among us well, first of all, if leading a life of pilgrimage in our time, and surely the answer to this is yes, is just defi- obviously going to look different and take different forms. And also if at any given time we're not noticing <laughs> some of the great religious people who are out there doing this. It's got to be the case and that it's just a question I would like to answer answer with greater clarity than I can. Who are their successors? 
they're out there somewhere. Uh, they're doing things. I once went to Chicago on assignment to meet various people who were doing things that made them successors to these four people. But it was a bit of a stretch. Mm. Uh, it may be that the reason we know so much about these people is because they were writers. There may be people doing things the way Dorothy Day was doing them or Merton, they're but they're just action. not writing them. So mm-hmm. that the, the artistic component of this calling is not there in the same degree, possibly. Or they're too busy uh, doing good works, maybe, to write. Dorothy Day often had to justify writing. She thought she could be doing something more useful. And she probably wouldn't have been a writer, I suppose, if she hadn't been writing before she became a social activist. You know, it's hard to imagine that she would have taken the time to become a writer in the middle of that. It's probably true. But at the same time, her father was a journalist, and it was almost like the family business. Her, her brother was an editor of one yeah. of the big New York papers here, and she thought early on in her uh, time as a Catholic, what do I know how to do? Hmm. She didn't think of herself as an organizer, but she thought, I do know how to put out a newspaper. Yeah. I think yeah. I'll do that. You know, something also that's striking, if you think about the contrast between them then and now, is these were very intellectual, progressive, radical, sort of sophisticated people, each in their own way, who belonged to a pre-Vatican II church. Um, now, all right, the New York Times, this is such an interesting fact you note in your book, that the New York Times refused to list the Seven Story Mountain as a bestseller, or to put it on its bestseller list because it was a religious book. <laughs> um, like the Bible. Like the Bible, said. yeah. The Bible sells, but we don't put that on, <laughs> right. they told Robert Giroux. <laughs> right. But at the same time, I I want to say it's striking that, you know, Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux is, you know, the perhaps the preeminent literary publisher. And it's a little bit hard for me to imagine in the 21st century that uh the leading lights of Forrest, that Forrest Russell and Drew could be so closely identified with these people who were not just religious writers, but religious activists and leaders. I mean, that seems to be another time to me. Is that wrong? Do you mean because it's, because it's not allowed now well, or no. there's a cultural taboo? Maybe or? we don't associate liter. We don't use the words literary, intellectual and religious and religious activist in, and monks, <laughs> you know, we don't we don't think of those qualities in the same sentence or defining the same groups of friends. Do you think it has to do partly with Catholicism or with Christianity? Mm, well, because, for example, nobody thinks twice about the Dalai Lama having a lot of books. Yeah, uh, it seems perfectly natural. Yeah, and so maybe that seems natural to our time in the way that that. These writers seem natural in theirs. Yes. I actually don't think they seem natural in their time. They were always a little exotic. Okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm getting voices from behind the glass. Just one minute. Well, I think we'll do it with readings.
What, what's the question? Okay. Um, my, uh, one, I think this may be a question. Um, we're just about wrapping up, but this may be a question I, I neglected to ask. Um, how would you fit Flannery O'Connor into this idea of pilgrimage? How does she fit, or is she sort of um, a different kind of figure in this group of Walker Percy and Thomas Merton and Dorothy Day in, in terms of her as a pilgrim? Well, I think she fits fits all together. The temptation is to think that because she was a cradle Catholic and the others weren't, that there's just a great gap between them. But the fact is, O'Connor's work has to do with the moment of conversion hmm. in the profoundest way. And again and again, the person is the dramatic moment in her work is where the person has to, in theological terms, cooperate with grace or not is forced to a choice about about Jesus in most instances in her stories, a kind of confirm or deny moment. And again and again, it happens on the road. Uh, most famously in The Good Man is Hard to Find, there's an old lady by the side of the road and an escaped killer has got a gun to her head and they have an exchange. It's on the road. It's on pilgrimage. So hmm. I really think she fits... It's really I also pilgrimage think in the reading. The, yeah, sorry. Oh, I think in the reading that that I gave you, mm-hmm. O'Connor makes clear that she's also much more familiar with the modern experience of unbelief than a lot of her admirers would think. Hmm. She's in there saying in 1962 that she struggled in college with the relation of Christianity to the non-Christian religions. To me, that's the big question for would-be believers of our time: How do these religions all fit together? Right. And there's O'Connor, who to some people is just the most orthodox Christian there ever was, saying that this was a big problem for her in college. Uh, She fits more than we might think. How does immersing yourself in the thought and experiences of these four Catholics of the mid of the 20th century, how does that make you think differently about or reflect on what it is to be Catholic now, personally? Well... A lot of things come up, but I'm going to just mm-hmm. tell you about two of them. One is, it's to realize how Catholic the Catholic tradition is. Here are four people all... Catholic with a small believing. C. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. In a sense, there are four answers to every question posed in the book. There's the way O'Connor would look at it, and the way Percy would look at it, and the way Merton would look at it, and the way Day would look at it. And they're all faithful. They're all oriented in the same way, but their different dispositions show different ways to approach these things. Uh, So you get a sense of the variety of this tradition, which is often thought to be monolithic, or there's one answer that's handed down in the catechism, and that's it for everybody. The other is, it's a book of history about a particular time. These people recognize that they, at some point had to live in their own time and not another time. Merton yearned to be a monk of the Middle Ages, but he was a monk of the 1950s, and he came to grips with that. Same with Dorothy Day. She wasn't living in Tolstoy's age. (laughs) She was living in Henry Luce's age, and she had to to deal with that. So for me as a Catholic, I have to live in our time, and what are the challenges of our time? 
it's very tempting to imagine this golden age, their age, and to, right. to try to climb into the time capsule and pull up the ladder. But their lives say, you can't do that, so don't even try. Hmm. Can you be more concrete with me? Um, tell me something that has been more on your mind, something specific about living in your time or in your experience as a result of doing this project? Well, I'm going to take a long pause. That's okay. I'm, I'm going somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Push me to a further answer if this isn't good enough okay. for you. But okay. The, in a way, writing this book helped me to figure out my own calling in relation to theirs, I think uh, I tried to be, at an earlier time, a, a fiction writer, a reformer, a uh, kind of philosopher, and here I am writing a book of, of nonfiction, I don't know if you'd call it imaginative criticism or creative reading or uh, trying to read books with, with my life in this book and trying to tell their story forced me to discover the kind of writing that I might do it's not the kind that they did but that might advance the argument a little bit or move things forward a little bit for our time are you looking at your field of publishing any differently approaching it very much so to think of how tender the author is when the book goes to the editor, <laughs> uh, the excruciating uh, <laughs> vulnerability of the author. Yeah. You know, I, I knew that theoretically, but this author is, you know, as an author, you spend so many hours working on your book and thinking about what a few people in particular, the editor will think and, and wanting it to work and, so now as an editor and publisher, I have such a sense of how much trust is placed in the hmm. in the people who are going to put the book out and that we've really got to knock ourselves out for the books we're publishing because we're holding someone's life in our hands when we hold hold the book. You, you can almost say that's a spiritual virtue that's been cultivated in you. <laughs> well, one of the things that strikes me, and this is... Talk about a way in which writing the book has informed my experience of publishing. What's distinctive about a book I feel I discovered in writing this book is that unlike almost any other art form, a book is generally written alone and read alone. There are all these things that mediate between the writer and the reader. The publisher, first of all, and the root of publishing is to make public. The uh, book groups, reviews, advertisements radio programs like this one. But finally, it's the book was read alone and will be written, or excuse me, was written alone mm -hmm. and will be read alone. And that, to me, explains the profound sense of connection that the reader can feel with the writer when, when the connection really clicks. It's, it's so immediate because this thing was created by one person and is meant to be encountered one person at a time. Mm 
Right. Like for me, faith. This is, <laughs> well, I was going to say, this is a literary expression of what these four writers would have called Christian personalism. Hmm. That, that it's, you're trying to get all your relationships one-to-one as much as possible. And there's something really profound and almost holy about serious writing when you think about it that way. Hmm. Our chance to encounter others that we might not be able to get to know any other way as readers because we can we can read their book, something that was created, in a sense, just for us. That might also say something about why books about the Spirit, which are t- profound, um, can really touch people. That this medium is so powerful when it uh, 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 can be on that subject. I think so. I mean, I think books have an in- interiority that we associate with religion or we look for in religion and often don't find. And books are mm-hmm. often... Books are a protected space in a way. We're free to close the book and put it aside. Uh, we're invited to look over another's shoulder and and tag along on someone else's journey. Uh, it's also it's done at home. Some of the uh, threatening aspects of uh, common life and religion. Um, it's just not there with a book because you can do it in the safety of your own home. Right. And I don't mean to be vague. I mean yeah. that it's at a time when one has reason to be fearful of some religious institutions. Uh, the book is challenging but not threatening. Right. The, the title of the book is wonderfully evocative. It comes from Flannery O'Connor, The Life You Saved May Be Your Own. I think my last question is... I tell me the story of the title and I'd also like to know what that phrase means to you now after writing all of this down well it comes from a story of Flannery O'Connor's the story was originally called The World is Almost Rotten <laughs> but O'Connor's friend Sally Fitzgerald said call it the life you say may be your own because at the end of the story it's about a handyman who moves in with a woman and her sort of a mentally feeble daughter and marries the daughter, evidently, to get the car and house that this family own and absconds with her and leaves her. And I don't want to spoil the story, but he, he abandons his new bride and drives down the side of the road off into the distance, passing one of those signs that were on the side of the road in the 50s telling people to wear their seatbelts because the life you save may be your own. (laughs) Now, there's some ironic dimension to this and some of the more um, stingy critics have uh, accused me of missing this irony. But (laughs) This, to me, is the pattern of pilgrimage distilled into an expression. The life you save may be your own. The goal is is salvation in some sense of the pilgrimage. Uh, the life you save may be your own. Of course, uh, it's nothing so selfish as to just save your own life. You're, tr- the pilgrimage is directed outward toward other people, uh, but it ultimately comes back to you and your own life. And then uh, the life you save 
may be your own. <laughs> uh, I may be pressing the point a little too much, but that also leaves room for for the workings of grace or God or however you want to put it uh, there. You, we can't confidently say that we can save our own lives. Uh, there's always some uh, assistance in that process, mm-hmm. and the, the title seems to suggest that as well. Do you think the title, that phrase, has any has some nuance to it, or uh, that maybe having written the book that it didn't have before, or did you choose the title after you'd written the book? I chose it about halfway through, mm-hmm. just in a strictly literary sense. O'Connor's title is now my title. It's mm. now my own. And that's, I don't say that arrogantly. She did the same thing. A Good Man is Hard to Find is a song by Bessie Smith. And uh, Everything That Rises Must Converge was the title of an essay by Teilhard de Chardin. Mm. So the pro- process of pilgrimage is how we take, this, take other stories and in a f- while remaining faithful to them, make them our own. O'Connor took the stories of her predecessors and so did the other three people in the book and made them her own. And I hope in some sense I've taken their stories and made them my own. And so the fact that the, the, the title of the book has that right in there, there's an extra level of implication for me as the author. Mm. Okay, well, that's your last word. Um, that's great. Let me just let me ask if there are questions back here. Okay. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot. And uh, (laughs) I I wish uh, it was really becoming a conversation in the last half hour. Yeah. I'm more used to this strict interview, and I wish I had uh, caught on a little earlier that we could just uh, banter back and forth. You know what? Um, It's always like that. I mean, sometimes it it always takes time to uh, warm up to the conversation. And... um, and I'm often, the other thing is that with these four people, you've got to get so much biographical stuff out of the way. I know. And you I know. can also do some of that in script. I'm, I'm also aware this is an unusual kind of topic. And I'm, I'm, there's some questions I'm not asking because I'm aware that I can do that in script and, and get it in in other ways. But um, Yeah, and I'm not complaining. I just yeah. wish, I, I hope I wasn't uh, just giving these long blocky no, answers no, 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 no. for too long. No, no, no. Because... You're right. It did get more conversational. And that was great. And, and no, there's, there's just so much here. And, uh, and this is great. So thank you. And you, wait, Kate's, uh, okay, Kate will be the person who will be in touch with you. She'll let you know what's happening with this. I'm not sure that we're going to be producing it right away because we've got some election-related things coming up. Right, but, um, right. Probably early fall. Okay, and uh, I don't know if you ever need any hooks, but uh, let's see, O'Connor died 40 years ago, August 3rd. Okay. Um that's next week, right? Yeah, that's a little uh, too quick for us. I but, guess not. but if you think <laughs> yeah. of another one, <laughs> okay. If you think of a September or October hook, <laughs> there's got to be one somewhere. Wait, what did Kate? Uh, well, Kate just made a joke. A little a hook that's a little cheerier. Is that what you said? Yeah. <laughs> <What would laughs> In the be? anniversary of a death. <laughs> yeah. If you think of any music that's especially meaningful for you, for some reason around the writing of the book or any of these people, put that in an email to Kate. Okay, that's what I'll do. Okay. Well, thanks a lot. Yeah. And uh, it's just great to have already had a conversation with you now to, to do, do one on the radio. Yeah, it was great. And it's just such a rich, a rich 
rich material. All right. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye. Krista, stay there.